This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The average American cannot cover a $400 unexpected expense. We're going to take a look at how that stacks up with our audience. I did a poll on the community tab of my YouTube page, so we'll see If we're doing better than average, Morgan Stanley raised their bull case on Tesla to $1,200. Now, I know there's a lot of Tesla in the news, something that I don't want to talk about it, but I kind of do. It's kind of a guilty pleasure at this point. Just interesting to see this company, the the different thoughts on it. It's it's kind of insane. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about Tesla in this video. Then, of course, we have my portfolio and specifically this real estate section that makes up a whopping 20% of my portfolio. We're going to be doing a deep dive into that. I'm going to give a breakdown on all my different holdings, the reason that I have them, the risk and pros and cons of each one of them. So I'm going to be going through all of that as well. And then, of course, we have lots of different questions and and emails at the end. One of them in particular was asked about automation. Somebody was very upset with an episode of mine where I talked about automation. So I want to dive into that email. I think it's very interesting. So I'll be talking about all of that later in the show as well. Okay, so first of all, let's jump into my portfolio and specifically the real estate section of it. If I go here, you can see the breakdown of my portfolio. It's in all these different sectors. Really, they're called pies on M1, but they're pretty much baskets of of different ways to organize your holdings. So I have it organized where I named them after each different sector and different category I wanted my stocks in. And then I picked companies that I wanted in each of them. And then I weighted them according to how I wanted to have my money distributed. So The ones that I have a higher percentage to means I want more of my money in that thing. So real estate occupies 20% of my overall portfolio. That is a very large percentage of my portfolio. The reason that I have 20% to real estate is because I really like being a real estate owner. My parents grew up and they owned real estate. They owned real assets, not REITs. So we had rental apartments that I would help do projects on and paint rooms and mow the lawns and help do that stuff growing up with. And I saw what having that rental income did. Having that residual money pay out every single month from tenants that went out and worked and then they paid you for the opportunity to live in those rentals, that was something that generated a lot of wealth over the years. So that treated my parents really well. They're able to retire and live off of that real estate. And that's something that I eventually wanted to do myself. Now, researching the stock market, finding out that there's something called REITs, which is just a real estate company that you can invest in, I became very excited about that because we have this amazing opportunity with brokers like M1 Finance and Robinhood or any of them, we're able to go on and buy portions of great real estate companies that have been around for a long time that are continually growing and that offer that same type of idea of having high cash flow continually paid to you month over month. That's what a lot of these companies are. Realty Income Corp pays monthly, LTC pays monthly, and then the rest of these pay quarterly, so every three months. But the basic principle is the same. You're getting a high amount of yield. You're owning these companies that they're real estate companies and they're paying you rent every single month. So that's something that I thought was pretty awesome when I found out about. And the benefit of it is doing it this way. You don't have to deal with renting apartments. You don't have to deal with answering the phone. You don't have to deal with worrying about the stress of, are these people going to like living there? Are they going to be upset? Are they going to pay their rent? You don't have to have any of those stresses of being a landlord. So You don't have any of those stresses, but you do own real estate and you still get the paychecks that come in. 
Now, of course, there's benefits to each direction you go. If you go out and you buy your own rental apartment, there's certain benefits that you can do there. You can use a lot more leverage. You can get money from the bank. There's certain control that you have over it that you don't have in this situation. So you have a lot more direct control over who you rent to, what apartment you're buying, everything about it. You're in a lot more direct control when you go out and you purchase your own rental property. So there's benefits on that side, but there's benefits on this side as well. For instance, I have six different real estate companies that I've dispersed my money into quite evenly. I've waited some a little bit more than others, but it's pretty even among these six different companies. And these different companies, they have different management. They invest in different ways. They're in different markets. And what that does is makes it so I'm a little bit more diversified. So on a brokerage, you have the advantage of being able to spread your money out a little bit easier and diversifying. And that's what I've done here. Now, I want to go through these six different companies that I own and explain my rationale and the risks behind them. Realty Income Corp and Store Capital are both pretty basic companies. They own roughly the same type of properties. They're standalone buildings, commercial buildings that they rent out to companies, a Walmart or a Walgreens, those type of companies might rent a building from Realty Income Corp. So those are the type of tenants they have. They're steady payers. There's not much that happens with these two type of companies. Other ones that are similar, Well Tower and LTC. These are both companies in the healthcare industry. So LTC Properties and Well Tower, they both operate like assisted living, nursing facilities, places that pretty much cater to the aging population that we have. We have a lot of baby boomers that are aging. We have a whole population right now that, that needs help and assisted living. And that is going to have continued demand as years go on. So that is the reason why I hold these two different ones in healthcare. And then Simon Property is a mall REIT. This one is the highest risk. It's the one that has the most opinions on, the most debate on, on what direction it's going to go. I'm going to explain why I'm bullish on it. And then we have NRZ, New Residential Investments, which is a mortgage REIT. Unlike all the rest of these that invest in properties, NRZ invests in mortgages and mortgage-backed securities. So it's a whole different type of real estate company, and it has an insanely high yield. So I'm going to explain why I hold that one as well. But First of all, let's look at Realty Income Corp. This is analysis from CFRA, which is an independent research company that does fundamental analysis on these different companies. Now, we had one of our viewers here that's good enough to send us this research so I can look at it and give a little bit of their input on the show. But I think it's pretty interesting to look at. So they give Realty Income Corp right now a buy rating, four out of five stars. And they have a breakdown of the reasons that they give it this rating. They say that our buy recommendation reflects our view that we see Realty Income Corp as more insulated from the current retail wells compared to pairs as most of its tenants are non-discretionary or service-oriented, such as convenience stores, drug stores, health and fitness, quick service restaurants, and entertainment. The company has a long history of high occupancy rates backed by our weighted average lease term of 9.4 years, along with a stable growing dividend payment, providing investors with a reliable income stream. Okay, now I don't mean to pat myself on the back here, but I'll indulge a little bit. The research that I've done on Realty Income Corp and my thesis for having it as a buy largely fits with their same recommendation here. I've showed the stable, reliable dividend growth of Realty Income Corp. I've talked about their high occupancy rates. In the past, they've always kept their places high occupancy. And I've talked about how most of the places they own are really resistant to recessions. They're service type of stores. So those were the basic reasons that I invested in Realty Income Corp. And that is exactly the reason that they're giving this a buy rating. They're saying all those same reasons. Now, they also outline the risks here. They say that the risks to our recommendation and target price include continued retail disruption, especially spreading to other non-discretionary retail categories like drugstores, excessive supply in retail real estate, and or sharp rise in interest rates. Now, one thing I'll mention here is the, the risk of a sharp rise in interest rates. 
that is a risk that you'll see for any real estate. They do so much long-term debt and, and they're so sensitive to interest rates that if there's a sharp rise in interest rates, that could adversely affect realistically any real estate holding you have. So that's just a risk that you're going to take if you invest in real estate. So overall, they think that this is a pretty solid company. It's insulated from its competition and they give it a buy rating with four out of five stars. The next thing that I'll reference here is the dividend safety score from Simply Safe Dividends. They say that this one's pretty safe. So Realty and Concorp, they say, has a very safe dividend. They give it an 86 out of 100 is its current safety. Next up, I'm going to go through the healthcare REITs that I have. So I have LTC Properties and I have Well Tower. And both of these are in the healthcare industry. They own buildings, like I said, that are senior housing, nursing facilities, or healthcare administration buildings, those type of things. Now, I can go through and the research on both of them, they show that Well Tower is a hold with three stars. The LTC is also a hold. So three out of five as well with LTC. The rationale is that they're just moderately priced right now. That's pretty much the hold for them. They say that the risks are changes in, in policy. So if we got a new president and they had a lot of different healthcare changes in policy, that's a risk to owning healthcare companies. The dividend safety score on Well Tower is a 72 out of 100, so safe. And then LTC properties, 52 out of 100. So this is borderline safe right now, but that's LTC properties. They pay a monthly dividend. I like having each of these in my portfolio. I think that there will be continued demand for healthcare centers in the future with an aging population, and I can't see a new administration or rules really affecting these companies all that much. I don't think that anybody's going to come in and really mess around with these companies too much. So that's my thesis on it, but just know that's the risks going in. Now, next up, we have NRZ, New Residential Investments. This company is a mortgage REIT. So they invest in mortgages and mortgage-backed securities. It's kind of a complicated business model to explain. If you want to read more about mortgage REITs, you can read on Investopedia all about them. But basically, they're investing in the mortgages, not the actual property. So that's the difference between them. It's still real estate, but a different type. And mortgage REITs are inherently a lot higher risk than equity REITs. So if I look at this, Here's the difference. NRZ has an over 11% dividend yield. Over 11% is what they're paying out. With just the amount of shares that I own, I get like 70 to $80 a quarter just from this company. So pretty big dividend payment. I love getting those $80 every single three months from this company. It usually gets reinvested back into different companies and buys more shares. So I really like having that happen. Now, it has a really big dividend yield, but it's a mortgage REIT. It's not a dividend growth company. So you're not going to see any history of them growing their dividend year over year like a typical dividend growth company. As far as the research goes, the CFRA has a sell rating on this. They don't believe that it's worth the value right now. A lot of this research comes down to them just believing that right now it's overvalued. And as far as Simply Safe Dividends goes, it's not really too valuable with this type of company. The dividend is 30 out of 100, so it's unsafe. It's in the unsafe category, and it's likely that they could cut their dividend. That's the nature of mortgage REITs is they cut their dividends all the time. So I wouldn't sell this company if they cut their dividend. Typically what would happen would be instead of paying out like 11%, they might pay out like six or seven or maybe 8%. The yield would still be high despite a dividend cut. So I'm not going to sell it if they cut their dividend and the yield goes down a few percentage points. They pay out as much cash flow as they can all the time. They don't typically focus on having that nice continued growing dividend payment that most other dividend companies do. Last but definitely not least, we have Simon Property. This is the biggest REIT. It's the biggest mall REIT in the world. This company has a lot of different opinions on it. There's some people that think that malls are a thing of the past. There's some people that think that it's going to be part of our shopping routine that we do. I'm bullish on this company. The analysts are bearish on it. And if I'm correct, that creates a lot of value investing in this company. 
if I'm incorrect, then Simon Property will continue to struggle and they will cut their dividend and I'll lose money on it. So that's kind of the two possibilities here. Now, just to go into Simon Property a little bit, if I look at their dividend yield, it is 6% right now, which if you've been looking at other REITs, they're really not close to that. Most of them are around 3.84% right now. Finding a company that has income of 6% that will pay you out 6% every single quarter, an equity REIT, that's very difficult to do. So this is a company that's yielding higher right now than it has in the past five years. If I go and I look at the ratings here, they have a sell on it. Two out of five stars from CFRA Research. Now their rationale, I agree with about half of it. They say that while SPG, Simon Property, remains the best of breed in terms of shopping mall REITs, we have become concerned with Simon Property's decision to double down on shopping malls by one, acquiring an 80% interest in Taubman Centers, and two, SPG buying, along with others, bankrupt apparel retailer Forever 21. So Simon Property purchased Forever 21. They say one of the top tenants, we were previously positive on Simon Property's rhetoric in becoming more than just a shopping mall REIT, expanding to multifamily, etc. Instead, Simon Property is clearly staying as a mall and outlet operator, which are properties not only at risk to e-commerce, but also permanent changes in consumer shopping behavior. In our opinion, we think that Forever 21 turnaround will prove more difficult than anticipated. While Simon Property has the best balance sheet and can afford the investment, we note the large amount of debt will push Simon Property's net to debt ratio to 6.1 times up from 5.2 times. So that's their take on it. Now, reading through their rationale, their analysis on this, I will say that I agree with about half of it. I think that the Forever 21 turnaround will prove difficult. I think that that is something debatable whether they should have purchased that retailer or not. But I do like the purchase of the Talman Centers. Those are really high quality malls. I think that those are great to have in Simon Property's portfolio. So I don't see that as a negative them purchasing Talman. But regardless, they have a 2 out of 10. That is a sell rating from CFRA. As far as the dividend rating score, they have a dividend safety score of 65, which is considered pretty safe. So they have a pretty good balance sheet. They should be able to pay out their dividend for a time to come. It's really going to come down to how this company does over the long run if they're really able to turn around malls. Now, I want to look a little bit more in Simon Property and see what the management, what they're saying they're doing to make this turnaround happen. Here's them explaining a little bit of what they're doing. The world of retail is evolving, and I'm happy to report that Simon is thriving. The future of retailing is omnichannel. The math pretty much says that e-com is not putting bricks and mortar out of business, that e-com is a part of the bricks and mortar business. This seamless experience between digital and physical. Retailers are thinking about how do they get people to come into the store for reasons other than purchasing merchandise that helps build brand loyalty. And that's where we come in. We are creating the live, work, and play destinations. We're creating the mall of the future by redefining the property through the redevelopment process. Secondly, through our leasing efforts and curating a mix of brands that are unique and cutting edge. Thirdly, through innovation to help our shoppers be smart shoppers. And lastly, through our marketing efforts, which have gone from both traditional marketing into the digital areas where we can speak to consumers with specific content that they want to hear. So there they are trying to explain a little bit of how they're changing their malls to fit with future shopping behaviors. Now, like I said, this comes down to a bet of what you think the future that malls play in our society. I will say that I'm a little bit biased by the fact that I have two malls around my area. And these aren't low quality strip malls. These are like high end city center malls. 
and they're just really busy all the time. These are places that are in high demand. They have a lot of business. Right now, it seems like the outlook's pretty good for them. So if Simon Property purchases Taubman and keeps picking up places like that, and they have the balance sheet to continue to adapt, I think that they could be in a big position. But this is definitely the holding, in my opinion, out of my real estate that has the highest amount of risk. So know that going in, you're making a bet on mall shopping if you invest in Simon Property. Okay, the first piece of news that I want to go over is about savings. This is an article from the Wall Street Journal that they just ran that talks a lot about savings. Now, a lot of people view spending as wealth creation because it makes up 70% of our GDP, how our economy is measured. But I view spending as the byproduct of production and savings. It all starts with savings. If you go out and you work and you have a savings, you can lend that money out. You can put it in a bank where they lend it out and you can invest with it. That is where real production goes. Now, purchasing things, having buying power, production is the first step. Overproducing and having a savings is really the second step in this. So I view savings as an extremely important part of our economy. It brings stability, lowers financial anxieties, and I think it's the main building block of building wealth. Now, this article outlines some pretty concerning things regarding savings. The leading piece of data that it references is from the Federal Reserve. It says, quote, according to a 2019 study by the Federal Reserve, roughly four in 10 Americans wouldn't be able to come up with $400 in a financial emergency. Think about what that just said. From the Federal Reserve, they're saying 40% of Americans could not come up with $400 in cash to cover an emergency, something that's unexpected. It says that if they do have an unexpected expense, they would have to rely on costly measures such as taking out payday loans and borrowing on credit cards. Do you see what this is? The people that have savings, these payday loan companies and credit card companies, they've made money, they put aside savings, and then they use that savings to earn them more money. They use it to lend out to people in the form of credit card debt and payday loans. Now, each one of those, the way that they lend out money and the interest rates that they charge are completely ruthless. They will take advantage of you and your lack of savings and financial preparedness to the fullest extent that they legally can. They are like blood-sucking leeches. Credit card companies, and especially short-term loans like payday loans, ones that banks don't even want to mess with, those are the ones that will take advantage of people more than any other companies. They are terrible, and it's a vicious circle to get caught in them. People's lack of savings makes it so they have to take out short-term loans. Those short-term loans have extremely high interest rates, which makes it so that you have less money to work with. These payday loans and credit card companies... They rely on you not paying off the full balance. So you get stuck in this cycle of constantly having these companies leech away your earning power and your ability to save money. So they make it so that you get further and further behind financially. Now, I think that for the most part, people know that they should have a savings. They know that they shouldn't be going and taking out credit card debt, taking out payday loans, and relying on that to fund their lifestyle. Now, I wanted to compare this to our audience. I wanted to get a rough idea of how this 4 in 10 Americans that can't cover $400, I wanted to compare that to the audience right now listening. So I did a poll, like I do frequently. If you're not subscribed, you can subscribe to the channel. You'll see these show up in your YouTube homepage when I ask different questions. But I did this poll and I just asked, how much do you have in savings? 15% of our audience had less than 1000 Not 40%, 15%. Between $1,000 and $5,000, we have 25%. Between $5,000 and $10,000, we have 15%. Between 10,000 and 25,000, we have 18%. Over 25,000 is the biggest group. So roughly 27% of you have over 25 grand in savings. Now this does confirm my suspicion that overall, the type of people that are viewers of this content, 
investing channels, personal finance, wealth creation, this type of stuff is going to naturally attract people that are wanting to improve that aspect of their life. And as such, you can see the results here. Overall, the viewers of this channel are in a much better financial situation to be able to handle hardship than the rest of America. We have 40% of Americans not being able to handle a $400 financial emergency. That's really concerning. But with our audience, we have 15% saying they have less than $1,000. So this is the type of group that you want to surround yourself with if you're wanting to look at finances. I've always heard that I want to be the dumbest person in the room. If I could surround myself with people that are smarter, more intelligent, that have figured things out better, that's the type of people I want to surround myself with. I don't want to surround myself with people that can't improve me at all, that I can't learn from at all. So this is a good group of people to be around. If you're in this category, if you have less than $1,000 in savings, you're just starting off with your journey, don't be discouraged by the fact that a lot of people are well off that have done this for a long time. You'll get there. It's not a race. And other people that have experience doing this are going to be much further ahead. Now, there's a difficult question. Why is it so hard to save money? Why is that such a difficult task to accomplish? Most of these people do have some income. They could save a little bit of money, but we don't. I know people that make $100,000 a year. That is their salary that they've had for years. And they have maybe a thousand or two in the bank account, just enough to cover their mortgage. They live paycheck to paycheck. Now, of course, there are people that have tried to answer this question. Why is it so difficult for people to save money? And it turns out we have some weird psychological barriers. There's things that we think about with money that prevent us from saving it. For instance, this study, it says, recent research I conducted showed that people were four times as likely to start saving when asked if they would save $5 a day versus $150 a month. While saving the large amount feels like an unaffordable barrier, the small daily amount feels like an opportunity, even though they are actually equivalent amounts. Now, I can totally see why this is the case, that people have an easier time grasping the concept of paying five bucks a day than $150 a month. Just a psychological thing. I think it's easier to look at your average day and look at $5 and think, well, I could afford that. But adding on $150 expense a month, that sometimes will feel like a lot more. So this is the reason that I like automating your finances. If you have your paycheck come in on the 5th or 20th or 10th or 20th or biweekly every single month, you can set up your brokerage like M1 Finance to schedule a deposit into your account on that payday. And then you can act just like it's a tax, just like it's health insurance, something you just have to pay. That's the way I treat my investments. It's something I have to pay regardless of whether I want to or not. It comes out before other things. That money gets invested and then I look at how I'm going to pay all my other bills afterwards. I treat it just like I would a tax or something that's legally required to pay. Now, one last piece of data that we can look at with savings rates is the percentage of disposable income that people are saving. It's bounced back and forth, but it stays right around from like 6 to 8%. Right now, it's at 7.7%. That's the percentage of people's take-home income that they're saving. Not a lot. People should be saving more, should be saving around 15% of your income. That'd be another poll that I would ask, but my suspicion would be, that people of this channel are saving on average a lot higher than 7%. So I would assume it would be somewhere between 15 to 20%. This is something we can look at here. The more that people are able to increase this number, the more stability you're going to have, the more that you're going to be able to grow wealth. So try to increase the percentage of money that you're saving. Now, the next piece of news that I want to mention is that Morgan Stanley, they have a bull case and their base case for Tesla. And their bull case is now at $1,200 a share. That's the big headline. But I will note that their bull case before this was $650 a share, which if you don't know, Tesla right now is at $850. So it wouldn't make much sense for their bull case to stay 
below what their current share price is. But they've raised it to $1,200 a share. It does mention that Morgan Stanley's overall view continues to be that Tesla stock will fall. The firm stuck by its underweight rating on Tesla and raised its base price target to $500 from $360, a nearly 38% drop from the stock's current price. We believe the shares offer an unfavorable risk-reward skew. Now, I have looked at different analysis on Tesla from different firms that do analysis on these type of companies. Just because I think that it's interesting to see a company go up this much and I want to see what analysts say about it. And most of them have the same view. They believe that the risk reward profile is heavily skewed towards the negative because of how much the share price is shot up. So they could be right, but all these analysts were completely wrong about six months ago. They all thought that Tesla was worth far less than it is right now. So that goes to show that you can look at analysis, you can look at their ratings, but the market will eventually do what it wants to do. And a lot of times analysts are wrong. They could be right in this situation. The risk reward profile could be a bad company to buy right now. But again, they were all virtually wrong on this about a year to six months ago. Another thing I'll mention is that Bill Gates made the news talking to MKBHD, the YouTuber, because he said that he bought a Porsche, Porsche's new battery operated vehicle instead of the Tesla. You know, I just got a, a Porsche uh, Taycan, which is an electric car. Okay. And I have to say, I mean, it's a premium Christ car, but yeah. <laughs> it is very, very cool. Okay. Uh, that, that's my first uh, electric car and I'm in, enjoying it a lot. Yeah. So there's Bill Gates saying that he bought the Porsche, that he really likes it, and he didn't buy the Tesla. Now, this apparently kind of bummed out Elon Musk. He went to Twitter and said, quote, my conversation with Gates have been underwhelming, to be honest. Now, I don't know why I like seeing this. Maybe it's just a fact to know that even if you're a billionaire and you're a genius and you started these great companies, that you still have the same basic emotions as everybody else, that you have the same pettiness and competitiveness and starting little dramas like this, but it's just on a much bigger scale with a lot of followers and a lot of money involved. But everybody, when you come right down to it, we're basically the same. Elon Musk is starting a little bit of drama here. Okay, let's get to some emails here. Joseph Carlson Show at gmail.com. Joseph Carlson Show at gmail.com if you'd like to email in your questions or comments or complaints. This one is from Tom. He sent me an email and the subject line of it was episode 48, The Future of Investing. And the first sentence he says, Hello, I like your show. This episode though, dot, dot, dot. So this episode I talked about automation. I talked about how I don't think it's as destructive of a force that people paint it out to be, that it's going to be a great destruction of people's jobs and that type of thing. Now, he's talking about this, so that's the context of it. I want to go through and highlight some of his email here. He says, the Metropolitan Police Program at Brookings released a report in 2019 that showed that 44% of American workers aged 18 to 64 were employed in low-wage jobs with the median income of less than $18,000 a year. Certainly, cost of living varies from region to region, but in my neck of the woods, a wage at that level would make renting any one-bedroom apartment a fiscally disastrous decision. And we're talking about 44% of the able-bodied workforce, easily the largest demographic of earners. 40% of these low-wage workers are raising children. Further, 26% of them are household sole providers. I know you are trying to make an argument about the hyperbole surrounding automation, but you're stretching here revealing an almost callous ignorance of the financial fragility of the lower class. This pool of people, through their financial insecurity, are primed to view any threat to their livelihood as potentially deadly. 
They're really honestly living on the edge with few realistic opportunities to retrain or fruitful self-improvement. The rapid growth of automation should be accepted as inevitable. Whether you choose to celebrate it or remain defeatist about the outcome, it's going to continue to progress. But the poor are members of your community and your countrymen. It's disappointing to listen to you minimize your anxiety with evidence as flimsy as the federal minimum wage stats. I think you can do better. Hoping that you meet your passive income goals, Tom. Okay, Tom. There's a few things that I want to address in this email. The reason that I wanted to respond to it was because I think that this whole subject is very interesting, and I think that my position is very much misunderstood. So a couple things. One thing is that I'm not trying to downplay the situation that people are in, that are in a financially dire situation, living paycheck to paycheck, working jobs that can be replaced by robots. Of course, they're going to view automation as a very negative thing. It's a threat to their livelihood something that can take a job away from them. So I'm not trying to downplay the seriousness of the situation they're in. What I'm saying is on a broader picture, on a, on a bigger picture, automation helps those people more than it hurts them. So I'm going to try to explain that in this. One example I could give is you always hear about the wealth cap, right? The, the difference between the rich and the poor. So we have a couple people that have a tremendous amount of wealth. We have Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, people that have billions, hundreds of billions of dollars, right? They have a ton of wealth concentrated in a few people. And then we have a lot of people living paycheck to paycheck. So this is a part of society that many people feel is unjust and unfair. And in some ways it really is. Now, politicians have a way of dealing with that. Mostly it's through taxes, wealth redistribution, taking money from some people, giving it to others. There's ways to try to address wealth gap that way. But there's another way that I think addresses the problem pretty well. It's automation. Automation doesn't lessen the wealth gap. It doesn't bring it closer together, but it does make it a lot less meaningful. By less meaningful, I mean the difference between the ultra rich and people that are just getting by. The differences in their lifestyle is not that different. So I could take myself as an example. I'm not living paycheck to paycheck, but I'm not a billionaire. I'm not anywhere close to a billionaire. So I can compare myself to Jeff Bezos and I have the same iPhone he does. We both have iPhones. He doesn't have any special uh, phone that Amazon made for him and just him. Jeff Bezos has an iPhone. We both can view the same movies because the process of aggregating and displaying movies has been done by Netflix. So he doesn't have any kind of unique content that he can view. I largely enjoy the same media that Jeff Bezos does. I have the same access to YouTube. I can watch the same videos. I can browse the same internet. I can play the same games. He doesn't have access to any type of special games that he plays on his computer. All that type of stuff I have access to. So all those type of things are things that automation has made easy to distribute to millions and billions of people. That's what automation does. It makes processes more efficient so that we have an abundance of it and we can give it to more people. We've done the same thing with the food industry. We've highly automated it, made it so it's a very efficient processes, not requiring a lot of people. And as a result, you and I can eat about the same quality of food that Jeff Bezos does, a person worth billions of dollars. You can name off virtually any type of good or service that has heavy amounts of automation, and you and I have roughly the same access to it that a billionaire does. You can even look at the cars that you drive. Look at a Tesla. They're what, forty dollars or $55,000? A lot of everyday people are able to go and afford a Tesla if they want one, and then they're driving the same car that movie stars are and billionaires are, people worth hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. So everything that's automated, everything that has more efficient processes involved, lessens the effects of the wealth gap. It makes it so even though I'm not worth billions of dollars, I don't have any special kind of income, I live roughly the same life that Jeff Bezos does. 
I have the same entertainment, the same food. I can drive just as good of a vehicle. I have the same type of living conditions. My TV at home. We've automated the process heavily of creating televisions to where you can go and spend a thousand bucks and get a huge TV. So now it's not like he even has some special movie theater room that's way better than the viewing experience I have. So this is what I'm talking about when I say overall automation and efficiency, it benefits the people on the lower end more than it benefits the wealthy. It equalizes people. It makes it so the wealth gap is less and less meaningful. Now I can keep going with the comparison and we can look at things that aren't automated. Things that are only done by human labor that robots can't make more efficient. So we can look at things like giving massages. That's something that a robot really doesn't do a good job of. So having an on-staff massage therapist in your house, that's something Jeff Bezos can afford and can enjoy that I can't. Having a cleaning service come in and clean your entire house every single week, that's something Jeff Bezos probably has that I don't have. So those are things that he can afford that robots can't do that separates him from me. That's a better life he's living because of the lack of automation in these areas. I can name off more things like a private chef. He probably has that in his house. He's eating better because we don't have automation for private chefs in people's houses. You see what I'm saying here? Everything that's human intensive, that robots haven't made more efficient and more automated, are things that wealthy people can enjoy that the masses really can't afford to enjoy. So when I talk about automation not being a bad thing for people, this is what I'm talking about. That everything that becomes automated and more efficient, more people are able to enjoy it. It makes it so that people that are ultra rich don't have a leg up on everyday people. Now, the more things are human intensive, less likely to be scalable and automated, the more that's things that are going to be exclusively enjoyed by the ultra rich. So I can take some examples of this. Like, let's just play out a scenario here. Let's say that one of the advantages of a wealthy person is that they can afford cleaning services to come in and clean their entire house every single day, right? Their house is just always clean. They never have to worry about cleaning. So that's something that rich people have that I don't have. Now, I can go out and buy a Roomba, which is the little robot vacuum that goes around and vacuums my floor. That puts me one step closer to a cleaning service, but not really, because all it does is vacuum my floor. So I still have to pick up toys after my kids and clean up things and do dishes and all that type of stuff. But let's say theoretically that that iRobot company, the whatever company makes Roomba, let's say that they make a lot of advancements with their robot. And that robot now, instead of just vacuuming the floor, it can do the dishes, do the laundry, it can clean the countertops, it can pick up all the toys and all the clothes. It can do everything. That robot can now clean your entire house every single day. What that would do is that would automate a group of people out of work. That would make it so home cleaning people would lose their job because now everybody has access to this robot they just have to buy one time and then it cleans their room like a full cleaning service every single day. So there's the pros and cons to this. The pros are that now everybody has access to a home cleaning service because it's been automated. We have a robot do it. It's cheap and inexpensive and widely distributed. Now everybody has a cleaning service in their home. That's the pro of it. It makes it so that Jeff Bezos and me and Jeff Bezos and you, there's one less difference, that his money doesn't allow him to have an exclusive access to cleaning service. There's no big cost that separates the two. So that's the pro of it. We're equalized in one more thing. The con of it is the people that lose their job, the people that get automated out of a job that used to work in the home cleaning service industry, and now they're temporarily displaced. My view is pretty optimistic. I think people in this situation will be able to find new work. And because of the freed up capital and the amount of wealth that's generated through automation, I think that we have safety nets and things that can help them why they pursue 
education in different fields. So I'm not saying that everybody needs to learn to code. That whole meme, I don't agree with that. I think it's highly naive and, and kind of irritating that everybody from every background could just learn to code. I don't think it's that easy, but I do think that everybody has the ability to do something a robot can't yet do. Robots are good at doing highly finite, repeatable tasks. They're not good at general AI. I think there's going to continue to be a lot of work that robots aren't able to do. So that's my general stance on this. I'm not trying to downplay or minimize people that are threatened from automation. I do think it's scary if you look at robots and you think they're coming to take your job. So that's a scary situation to be in. I do think, generally speaking, that these people will be able to find jobs that robots can't do. But I will say, I'm looking at it on a broad picture. When I look at the winners and losers in this situation, or the people that stand to benefit the most, it's definitely everyday people. Everyday people are the ones that benefit the most from automation. Jeff Bezos has so much money, he could hire a human to do anything for him. He could have an army of humans do anything for him. None of us have the resources. The rest of us are relying on automation for our quality of life. We're relying on mass distribution, efficient ways of doing things to be able to have our quality of life raised. So the more automation there is, that raises the quality of life drastically for everyday people. Travis says, hello, Joseph. Appreciate your content and expanding my ideas for investing in dividends using M1 Finance. I have two questions. How do you or are you planning on a repeat of the stock market stagnation that happened in the 1900s to 1950s? And I was wondering if that would affect the dividends in any way. Also, I know you don't like real estate, but hard assets are a great way to diversify portfolio. Not to be too personal, but do you plan to invest in property besides your own or will you be receiving property from your parents? Just looking out for you, as we know, diversification is important outside the market. Okay, Travis, for your first question on stock market stagnation, the market just sits there, goes up and down, doesn't really go anywhere for a number of years. We've had that since 1900s. We had that from 2006 to like 2012. The stock market really didn't go anywhere. So I've seen that before. And that is part of the reason that I like dividend investing, that even if the stock market just stays the same, I'm going to continue collecting dividends. So it's kind of a, a hedge against stagnant stock markets that own a portfolio that has a good level of income. So that is one portion that I like it, but I likely wouldn't change my investment strategy too much. If we had a really stagnant market, I just try to compound shares as quick as possible. Now, your next question, you say that I don't like real estate, the hard assets, but I want to diversify my portfolio. I wouldn't say that I don't like real estate. So I have grown up, obviously, with a family that owned rental income apartments, and I saw how much work is involved. When I look at my time, it's already pretty stretched right now. Between running a YouTube channel, going to full-time work, and having a family to take care of, not a lot of time left over in the day. So I'm already very, very busy. The thought of adding on a rental income apartment and having to manage that and deal with it is just one more thing to manage. So... And people in a different situation where they have a little bit more free time, I think that that is a great investment. I would not discourage anybody from owning a rental income property. So I'm not negative on that at all. Just right now for me personally, I think what fits my situation better is owning REITs. It just fits a little bit better because they're so passive. Now your other question, will I be receiving property from my parents? Now this question is difficult to answer. I think truthfully speaking, I'll probably receive something. The way that my, my dad specifically has set up the finances is... He's living off of rental income, so he still owns the underlying asset. This is the reason why I say there's a difference between selling the underlying asset and getting paid the income. People that say that there's no difference between the dividends and selling of the shares, 
I just think they're wrong. I look at my parents' situation and they have rental income properties and they're living off of the income from those properties. They still have the assets. So if that continues and they're able to just live off the yield of their investments, we'll still own the underlying investments. Now, I'm not factoring this in to my decision-making. I'm not relying on it. It's definitely not known what I'll receive or when I'll receive it. My parents could live a very long time. So I want to have a good financial future. And none of the decisions I make are taking into account the possibility of me receiving some kind of financial windfall. So that's not factored in my decision. I'm going off of the assumption that I'm not going to get any help from my parents or get any help from the government. That's the type of way that I'm making my financial decisions. So I would like to be totally reliant on myself without any intervention from third parties. That's the that's the way that I'm viewing it. If I do receive something from my parents or I do receive something from the government, great, but I'd like to be totally financially independent regardless. So that's what I'm shooting for. That's the goal. I don't know what I'll receive or when, so it's not really something I consider or think about too much. Okay, well, that's all the time I have for you guys today. Thanks for everybody that subscribes, that likes the video and shares the channel. I appreciate all of you and I will talk to you next time.